you know, that whole statement, I don't know my language or I, I lost my language. Sometimes I think that we're not acknowledging the parts of the language that are actually still with us, you know, in the way that we talk, in the way that we tell stories. Welcome back to another episode of Radical Narrative. I am your host, Mylon Tatusis. Today for season four, episode four, we are sitting down with Mika Lafond. Mika Lafond is a Nahal Squirrel from Muskeg Lake Cree Nation. She resides in Treaty 6 territory in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. She's a mother, educator, and author. Mika Lafon graduated from the Indian Teachers Education Program, ITEP, at the University of Saskatchewan. She also completed an MFA and published a bilingual poetry book, which we will be discussing today. Before we get into that, I want to welcome our new patrons who subscribe to our Patreon and are now financially supporting us. I want to give a shout out to Anne, Wakey Jane, and Kirsten. Thank you for your financial contributions. So here it is, my sit down with Mika Lafon, the amazing poet and educator that many local people are likely familiar with. If you're not, you will be. So here it is, stay tuned and listen in. Thanks for sitting down with us and making time. I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast likely know who you are because I do have former students who listen to this podcast. So you likely have students, active students and former students who listen to this podcast too. But for our listeners who don't know who you are, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Where do you come from? And what do you do? Um, okay. Uh, my name is Mika Lafond and I'm from Muskeg Lake Cree Nation. Um, I grew up there until I was 17 years old, and then I moved to Saskatoon, and I've been living in Saskatoon pretty much since then. Um, I am a mother of two, and um, they're both grown and graduated, published author, uh, teacher. Um, I've taught every grade from kindergarten to fourth year university. Yeah, for sure. And I met you through USASC, I think, formerly. We even played rec basketball together, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you specific questions about your writing, in particular your poetry. Um, I do assign your book when I teach English 100. Um, students love it. Um, but yeah, let's talk about your writing. So you do have a book of poems out right now, too. Yeah, um, it's called Nepewanin. It's um, in Cree. That means uh, my way back. I wrote that one as part of my um, master's, my MFA in writing way back in 2014. It's an amazing book. So one one cool thing about the book that really stands out is your use of language, not only English, obviously, because it is poetry, but also the use of the Cree language. Yeah. So um, I knew that when I started, I had to do a thesis project, like a manuscript thesis project. Um, and I had to write a proposal and I knew that I wanted to write a book in Cree. So I compromised and made it bilingual just because there were questions about how, how I would have a committee that would understand all of my poems when I had to go and defend my thesis. So I, yeah, I compromised and I, I made it bilingual. I love I loved how you did it in Cree and English. And a lot of the students who are Cree who who do take my classes, they appreciate that too, because not only are we reading reading poetry and and 
and you know developing our reading skills and all this stuff for university but we're also like have this access to language that wouldn't necessarily be there if you chose not to do the bilingual approach yeah it would have been um, hard for people to understand at that point in my life i was really really focused on trying to improve my my cree language skills and trying to challenge myself to do it in a way so that um, i had to do it every day that's really cool. Well, the thing too that you just mentioned that is interesting is how the committee, like sort of academia had to say, cool idea, but where's the English version? Yeah. And there was actually like the, so it's a two-year program and my first year I wrote my project proposal and then it, there was probably about five discussions that happened over the first six months where we were just trying to figure out how we could meet in the middle um, because I wanted it in Cree and well, U of S, you know, that's predominantly English. (laughs) And, um, and so I had to find my own translator. So I, I approached my Nokum Gladys Wapaskreas from Thunderchild and um, she said, yeah, she would help me translate. And then there were discussions about, who would sit on the committee. I approached a bunch of people, but they just weren't able to commit to it. Uh, we had to decide the layout of the, the languages in the book. There were a couple of options. There was having the English and then the Cree come after it, having the Cree as the book, and then having an English appendix, having the English as a book, and then having the Cree come after, or else have the Cree come first on facing pages and have the English come after. And so I really fought to have it fully in Cree and then just have an English appendix or have the the Cree come first on the pages and then the the English coming second. It was just kind of, it was, um, I was trying to, trying to make a, a statement that Cree can stand alone and that Cree is the original language here. Like I had no idea that this was an ongoing debate or it was a debate to actually have, you know, this this book come out in terms of your project, um, in terms of like making space for the Cree language. It's interesting because it's like, especially at USAS, like the indigenization conversation, like some of our li- local listeners will know that USAS has sort of been kind of crazy the past few years. But you would think it'd be like, like when I saw your book, I thought that was it. Like I thought that was the product and that was the intention. I had no idea of this backstory. Yeah, it was, uh, there were a lot of discussions that I had to have and, and trying to find an editor that would, uh, be able to edit the Cree. Then how did that unfold? Did they find an editor that would be able to edit the Cree? Um, when I was doing my thesis, they just, they just trusted Gladys uh, because she was a language instructor and because her first language was Cree. They just, they just trusted her that, what it said was what it was supposed to say. Um, when I went to Thistledown, that was another kind of a, a challenge, I guess. When I submitted the manuscript, it took almost a year. It took about 11 months before they got back to me about if they wanted to publish or not, because it's such a big book because it's bilingual. And then they had to find an editor who understood the Cree. So I ended up getting to work with Rita Bouvier on the the actual like publication editing. That's interesting. That's an interesting sort of like challenge to overcome because it's kind of like we're in an era where people want to 
promote like indigenous worldviews and languages, but it's just interesting that there's this like these little barriers that had to be overcome for you to publish this book. Yeah. And I was kind of the, the first one to be doing a full poetry manuscript in two languages here in an indigenous language. And so there was uh, a lot of questions that they had because they hadn't done it before. Yeah. So in that way, sort of just paving the way for more books to come out that ideally will be bilingual in the future. Well, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's really cool. And yeah, I did assign this to like my my students when we were uh, when I do teach university classes, first year English class in particular, and they love it. And I, I had no idea that so much effort went into actually just getting those words onto paper and in print. So that's an interesting conversation to have with them in, in future classes. Um yeah. So I guess I want to like ask a question specifically of just about like your writing style and what goes into into your process as a writer. So do you have like a specific process in terms of how you get these poems generated, where they come from and how you ultimately get them on the page? Um, I sit outside. Sitting outside seems to give me the time to kind of meditate on things and memories come up and the whole process is about, well, for me, I, I had to really learn how to show things in my writing instead of telling, focusing in on like the five senses and, and trying to draw a picture with the words and trying to make it have some emotion with it. But the, the process, I get asked this a lot and it's really hard for me to explain it because for me, like I'll give you an example. My cousin Joy was doing an art exhibit and she wanted, she asked me to write a poem and she sent me a picture. And then I wrote that poem in about 20 minutes just from the picture. But then there's other times when a poem will take me like a month to get it just right. I don't know. It just like depends on the moment, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I like to ask that question because <clears throat> what like to, Ironically, I teach English, right? So that's like one of the courses I often get to teach. Um, and it's usually just like getting students in shape to be able to write academic papers and, and move on with their classes to their second, third, and fourth year classes. With first year students, they, they don't realize that everyone goes through the hurdle of having to be a writer, like they think it's a process that just comes naturally for others, which may be true, but like writing for me was never natural. Like it's always an ongoing battle to sit and write. And to find the right word. Yeah, to find the right word. And I think it's like just interesting to hear how like to ask about your process and, and what went into this book, because um, my students, I know when we did discuss it in class and, and read it, um, it, it was like a goal. Like they realized, like they had a goal. Like you, you, you set a goal up for them where they want to be that person that's going to write poems or be that person to be able to write and publish. Yeah. It's like, I just finished teaching a creative writing class, a, a third year creative writing class. And so they have quite a few English classes under their belt. And when I started the first day, when I started teaching them, I said, okay, I kind of need to break your brains um, and get you off get you off that academic thinking, academic writing, because um, it's different. It's it's a different type of a craft that you're doing when you're creative writing. I had them do this activity with, with a partner and one person looked at it like a picture that I put up at the front and then the other person was facing the other direction. And then the person who saw the picture had to describe what they saw 
um, and really be selective of their words so that they can create a visual for the other person. And it was so funny after because they were all they they were looking at the sketches that the person the blind person did right the person that didn't get to see them and they were like that's not what i told you but i think that people assume that it's easy to find the words and it's easy to create direction and to create emotion and to to describe things in your writing but it it's not easy at all it takes a lot of practice yeah yeah for sure and there's definitely like an emotional element i find that even comes across in, in in your writing. So let me ask the question then is is in terms of like cuz I like how you distinguish between academic writing and the creative writing aspect. I know students like indigenous students in my mind when they begin to write they're natural writers. Like they they tend to write about history, about personal narratives and there is tons of emotion in their writing and sometimes it doesn't fit into the academic format, which is why I like to promote the creative writing aspect, right? Where they could actually read creative writers, explore that options if they want to explore it within their final papers or their papers and things like that. But I want to ask a question is like, do you think someone could be a writer if they don't feel their emotions strongly? Yes, I do. I think everybody has a story that they can tell. Um, It's just the form that they take, the form that they take in their, in their creative writing that will help to tell that story. So um, I think that's why we see so many different forms of creative writing. And so like in terms of like helping students or, you know, young writers become, you know, more confident in their writing, what are some, what are some, what's some, what are some words of advice for, for people who are struggling with this process of, of being able to write, not only for like university, but just in terms of even just a process for themselves to, to put words to paper. Journaling is the most important thing to get in the habit of doing that practice of journaling. There's uh, there's so many benefits to it, but one of the things that it does for you as a writer is that it, it gets you into the habit of turning your thoughts into like written word and it helps you to develop your voice as a writer, your style. And then the other thing that it does is it gives you something to go back on when uh, you can't think of anything to write. You you can go back and you can read your own thoughts and you can read your own memories and um, it can kind of prompt you to reflect on that. And then it gives you something to write about. Uh, the other thing is that the bigger your vocabulary is, the 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 better you become at describing things and the better that you become at creating a visual with your writing. So what I usually will tell people that I'm working with in creative writing is that they can use the word sad, but then I want them to go to the thesaurus and find out other words for sad that are specific types of being sad, or, um, you know, if you're happy, other types of words that mean specific ways of being happy. Cause I, I use the example that like, if you say a horse is running, you get one picture. If you say it's trotting, you get another picture. And if you get, if you say it's galloping, you get another picture. You have to describe what kind of running it's doing for your, for the person who's reading your work to really understand what kind of a picture you're drawing or what's happening. And then this is like the creative writing aspect. I think that I really wanted to touch on was sort of to get people to think outside the box because my writing style has always been academic. <laughs> and uh, even though I did go to school to, to be a 
poet. I did a creative writing program and then I switched majors. Um, I miss creative writing. Like I really miss it because it, it does so much more than, than like these block paragraphs in an academic paper where you got a site and there's more like flexibility with it. There's, there's this freedom when you do creative writing where you can trust yourself and what you're saying and you get really, you get really strong with your own voice. And I think with academic writing, cause when I do academic writing too, I'm always looking for that other voice that's going to back me up yeah. in what I think. And um, when you practice creative writing, you're telling your own story, you're telling what you think and you start to get this trust in yourself. And I noticed that with indigenous students on campus, when I'm teaching at the university, that by the end of a creative writing class, they're not afraid to share their opinion and they're not afraid to say what they think or talk about their experiences um, without needing that validation, I guess would be the word like that. They're right about what they think. Yeah. And one of the things too, with academic writing is students are often writing for grades, right? Especially on the undergraduate level where they're writing to get that, that good grade. And it sort of becomes like, almost like you're fitting it into the box and you're writing for the professor or you're writing for the class specifically. Whereas with creative writing, it's, it's all about like, obviously the person who's writing, like it's your story, it's the narrative, but then it's also like, in my mind, a bit more transboundary in an, in an audience. Yeah. And it's also, well, when we do it in a class, like when we do creative writing in a class, there's the workshop portion of it. So where everybody gets to read your work and then respond to it. I think that that really helps them grow as writers too, because if somebody's understanding their work in a way that they didn't expect, it makes them think about the way that they're saying things in their writing. But also what I've seen it, what I've seen happen is that like someone reads their work and then there's like this connection that's made because they have the same same experience, but they didn't know until one of them was brave enough to tell their story. I think that's what I miss is like the workshop element, especially like being a PhD candidate and writing by myself. <laughs> it's like you miss you miss the community and being able to connect with with other people. Yeah. And again, like academic writing, especially like first and second year courses, I find like some students get stuck with just writing for the professor. And uh, and I, and I, I kind of don't like that. <laughs> Yeah, like they hand in their first paper, they get a certain grade. And then when they have to hand in the second paper, they're all they're thinking about is what the professor wants and not what they're trying to say. Yeah. They can get that, get get the grade that they're hoping to get. Yeah. And unless like, and then maybe like only three or four people would read that paper, like the professor, maybe a TA or maybe the person who proofread it or the tutor. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And that's sort of just wild in my mind. And I think that's why like I, I really promote students just in terms of like being able to write in general, like being able to to get used to writing in any language and putting thoughts and ideas out there, because I feel like there's these these um, like these barriers to being able to write. Um, and I feel like we all have them. Like, obviously, you know, like um, the us writing in a colonial tongue. Uh, foreign writing system but as Cree people we've always had a a writing system we've always had language we've always had like the ability to share thoughts and ideas 
Yeah, it, that's um, that's something that's been big on my mind lately, um, just because I've been asked to do some changing of the English language arts programs for a couple high schools. And so I've been reading a lot and um, talking to people and and just like really thinking about how English is taught to our kids and how they're treated within those spaces because of the way that they talk instead of respecting that it is a second language here and that, you know, we're only about two or three generations in where kids are speaking English at home all the time. There's this, um, there's this lack of respect for the way that we put English together relates to the, to our original language. And, and so when a student or when a kid is struggling with literacy in English and they're graded on it, and they're put into, you know, they're categorized in the classroom based on their literacy levels. And all of that is falling on this, this kind of judgment that they, that English should be their first language. And it's so colonial. It's so colonial. And all, all of the other subjects are based on how well they can communicate in English. You go into the ESL classrooms where, you know, where teachers know that those students coming in English is their second language. And you see a totally different type of program happening for them. And there's a respect for their language. And so when I'm changing, when I'm changing things over, I'm trying to get teachers to understand that uh, the way that we speak, it's, it's like Kringlish. And that that's not a bad thing, because what it shows is that our language is still alive in there somewhere inside of us and that they just need to respect that. Yeah, totally. I agree. And 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 I, I literally was on the same wavelength you're talking about, about how like how we do have like this slang and how we speak English and for Cree people, even how we pronounce our S's and even for like the most, you know, educated native in my mind will still slip up their S's if they're Cree. <laughs> like yeah. it comes out and like I was like I was just recording uh doing a recording for our Patreon and I was reading from a book and my S's were coming out and I was like should I edit this out or should I leave it in and it was a chapter about language so I was reading Franz Fanon's uh Black Skin White Masks on uh, chapter one on on language and, and I was like what's going on in my brain like the psychology around this was just like it was really um like a deep intimate process to read Franz Fanon critiquing the use of a colonial language. But then at the same time, me like realizing that I'm still speaking with certain influences from Cree. And uh, it was an interesting process. It was a really interesting process to read out loud. Um, but I like how you're saying this because like when I went to school in New Mexico, I was hanging out with um, some, some people down there who, um, spoke their traditional languages, but their language was alive even when they weren't speaking it fluently. So I started to pick up on words from their community very quickly. And I've always wondered why it's always like up here, it seems like there there is a Krieglish, like there is this middle ground where people are, there are, you know, the, the I guess like the language structure in English is still Cree because some people would argue that we speak English backwards, 
right? Like even when you we write, like sometimes I always get dinged on like past tense or things like that. Like it, it's not lining up linearly.、Um, but there, there is like this Kriglish. There is this like this slang that we have that I think is really unique, and and people have that in other parts of the world. Yeah, they. It's the more you look into it and read about it, the more you find out that it's actually, it's it's everywhere where、um, colonization happened. When you're talking, when you're just talking, I was thinking about how I used to always get corrected for my pronouns, <laughs> and and now as an adult, when I listen to the generation that's just before me and my family. Pronouns get mixed up all the time, and it's because there's no pronouns in Cree. And so, yeah, so I can I can see where my language learning was at home, and so that that was how I learned to speak English. Yeah, and like for the audience who isn't familiar, I guess like in、uh, in Cree, there there's like our, there's really no like he she.、Yeah. So when a fluent Cree speaker tr- speaks English, sometimes they'll misgender somebody. <laughs> Yeah, and and for our generation, that was just normal. Like we just sort of accepted it. Like we know who he's talking about, but he said she. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, that's an interesting conversation too, because it's not like misgendered in like the negative way. It's just like we already came from a people who who had、um, who didn't have these pronouns that are really problematic in English, and、uh, and for some reason, like I don't know how do I say this. It's like. We were already one step ahead in terms of, you know, being able to embody and communicate with everybody. Yeah, and like, and to just understand people as human beings,、mm-hmm. and like spiritual beings, and so there's like, there's a whole story behind all of that. And I'm just beginning to learn it, but it those are the things that I like really find intriguing is. With the language and like learning the stories behind why and how, and and、uh, all the little cues in our language and and how they're used to describe and and how active how active our language is. Yeah, this conversation around language is interesting because it is like it is present in our lives, and I feel like for some of us, especially those in school, it tends to either.、Um, We either figure out how to like play the game and move forward, or sometimes we get trapped by it. And like I notice, some students get too bogged down with like the English language or too bogged down with academic writing. So, in your mind, like what are the common traps that that you you tend to see, and and how do we avoid those traps in terms of like doubting ourselves or doubting our writing process? Um, I honestly think that with academic writing. With the academic side of writing, I think that the most important thing is to have like a support system for when you're writing. If you're just learning how to how to、uh, work with that system,、mm-hmm. it's not. I don't think it's something you can do on your own.、Mm-hmm. I think you need you need people around you who can give you feedback, people who can ask you questions.、Um, you know, like. Okay, this is what you're. This is what you're saying. Is this what you're trying to say? And then even just like having someone who can help you with finding credible sources, because lots of times, I know I've had papers come into me, like handed into into me to grade, and I'm looking at the sources, and I'm like, oh, like you, 
this is not a good source for this. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not credible at all, but having, having that support and that feedback, I think really helps to build up confidence in making decisions in your writing. But I know, I know that first year university students, even though they've had 12 years of, of uh, English language arts, that when they get to university, they're, it's a whole new world. The, the writing at university is a whole new world for them. I mean, my first year of university, I failed English. So I, it took, I had to put in a lot of work to be able to actually get that English credit. Yeah. I always tell that story too, is that my first English class wasn't like my best class ever. And I, I did take that class too. And I think I ultimately had to retake it. Um, well, obviously I did. I had to retake it, but <laughs> But yeah, it's like that learning curve is really steep. And that, I think that's what bugs me right now, too, is it's like that standard's there. And, and you know, unfortunately, you need, need to pass uh, English 100 or an entry-level uh, English course to whatever program you're in. But I just don't like how, like, we get bogged down in self, like in self-doubt as a result of that. And I think that's why, like, I like to advocate for more creative writing aspects and letting students explore creative writing and their own personal narratives and, and just embracing their ability to write and get their ideas out there and communicate their own personal narratives. Yeah. It's like, if you give them a chance to play around with words and play around with sentence structures and, and uh, explore it a little bit and be curious about it and, and use that curiosity to kind of fuel their learning. It has better results than if you, um, if you're trying to get them to fit in that box. So I have a question. What is one thing that happened as a result of your writing in particular, like the, this book of poems that, that you didn't expect? I didn't expect to have so many private messages coming in about different poems that people had like a personal response to. I think because when I was writing my book, um, I was going through like, it's basically about me and my life and like experiences that I've had, but I thought it was my story. And then when I started getting these like private personal messages from people who are responding to the book, I realized that I wasn't alone out there and that it wasn't just my story, but that we all like, there's a lot of us who have stories that are very similar. That's really cool. And that's why like writing so important, right? It's like getting the ideas and the thoughts out there. Well, and sometimes it's so hard to voice your own story. Like it's so hard to, um, to put it out there vocally or like, verbally say something to someone um about yourself i think and i don't i i don't know but i think that comes from like that oppression um that we that we've all experienced and just never thinking that what we have to say is is important i guess but when you write something down you're saying it but you have a choice. You have the choice if you want to keep it for yourself, like just get it out and keep it for yourself. Or if you want to share it with somebody else and let them read it. And the I remember the first time 
I clicked send on an email with six of my poems in it. It took me like half an hour to get up the courage to actually send those poems to my, um, to my mentor who was reading. If you're writing personal things, it's really close to you in the way that you feel. And, and then um, it's a big step to share that with someone, but like to trust them enough to share that part of you. Cause I noticed that when, when, even when my students write the things that they know that I'm the only one who's going to read in creative writing, um, I get a lot of, a lot more personal stories than the things that they share with the class to workshop. There's some filtering that happens there. That's interesting. The filter, like I'm just, I'm just wrapping my head around it. I think, I don't know. Do you feel like part of like our, I don't want to identify it as a challenge, but like, do you feel that our relationship to writing is also influenced by like residential school and our relationship to colonialism? I think so. Um, I know that when I'm, when I was doing my MFA and I was the only indigenous person in the class and we were workshopping things, or we were talking about the books that we were reading for classes. um, I know that, in the beginning, I was very quiet and I would listen and I would try to figure out how to how to play the game in that class. And it never feels like I'm a, I'm qualified as an English speaker to um, to to be sitting there with those academics, even though like I have my master's degree. It never feels like I have that same ability that they have with English. I'm trying to think of how to explain this. Like I f- sometimes just feel like I'm faking it. Yeah, like I feel I feel similar too. Like I know imposter syndrome is like the common word people say to describe that. But that's just the word. But when you're in it and you're feeling it, it's just like it's like a it's like a clash of paradigms and it's unsettling cuz it's like you know you're you know you you know you're supposed to be in that space or you can be in that space but there's just like this little little voice that's just doubting you in your head yeah yeah exactly yeah i wonder if other i mean i don't know like i i just curious cuz it's coming from this conversation i wonder if like how english speakers like i wonder how they feel on their end cuz i think imposter syndromes generalize for just anybody in academia but for indigenous people i feel there's like a different take to it because it is like this emotional baggage tied to language emotional baggage tied to the institutionalization of education and history and we're sitting in those spaces um but then I wonder what goes on on like the settler side of things. Like, do do they, are they just oblivious to this? Like, do they experience it, or is it just like not even in their paradigm? Yeah, that, I wonder that too. Like, I wonder because it always seems like they're they're speaking so confidently about everything, but also like I when you talk about like the classic English literature, I wonder if they feel a connection to it. I don't, I don't feel any kind of connection to that, like classic English literature in, you know, old English, middle English, like all those, those older kind of stories. I don't feel a connection to them at all. So I don't ever feel confident talking about them. Yeah. That's interesting. Like, I wonder if like the average 
English settler who speaks English feels like a connection to Shakespeare, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, is that a heritage lineage thing? Because, um, yeah, it's true. Like, I remember, like, the thing with me was, and I just had this awareness this past week, was, like, my survival tactic for surviving classrooms was just capitalizing off my ability to read and write. Like, I knew that if I could just do this, I could survive. So it wasn't like getting an education for liberation. It was like reading and writing and honing that skill so I could survive. (laughs) So it's like the intention's completely different. Yeah, yeah. There's just like the whole intention of me reading and writing. And even to this day, and now I question it, it wasn't like, to get an education per se or to to learn to read and write it was literally just to survive the classroom like like everyone's done this where like you have to read out loud in class right so you go ahead and you count your pages and you realize you're going to read these two paragraphs so you start reading them to practice yeah. <laughs> so you're not yeah. even like you're not even like listening to the teacher or the other students read you're just reading you're just trying to memorize this one paragraph you have to read <laughs> like that was me like I, I did that to survive and and I just wonder like on the settler side of things like what is their relationship to reading and writing and is is there like is it as is there emotional baggage tied to that I don't know I think this is a good conversation that we're having because it's a, it's the conversation that no one really likes to have <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> or even like how they feel about words that they don't recognize. Cause I know there are words that I've read that I've never said out loud, like English words that I've read that I've never said out loud. And when I'm with indigenous people, like indigenous colleagues, I'm not like, I just, I'll just ask, how do you say this word? Because I, I don't know. Um, sometimes in my ITEP classes, you know, there'll be a word and something that we're reading and I'll, I'll say, how, how many of you have ever said this word out loud? And, you know, then we learn the word together, how to say it properly um, in English. But I just wonder, like, do they have that same fear of saying a word the wrong way in front of people? <laughs> Totally. Like I literally was just reading a chapter out loud and uh, I was reading words that I knew in my brain, but my tongue wasn't saying them. And it just like, it came out completely different. And I had to like Google and research pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) Like, am I saying that right? And I think it just boiled down to me like, well, I'm just going to say it and keep moving. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think there's there's definitely power in terms of like indigenous people acknowledging what we don't know because it is a foreign system like like the process of like classroom learning and writing in general in like the modern literary sense I guess is is something that like we're we're still getting used to like like I like how you highlighted and said that we're we're only three generations in or two generations in to being English speakers and it sounds like we don't like it. So there's a lot of like language revitalization. There's a lot of like going back to wanting to learn our languages because we've been here for like three generations and it's not that great. Yeah. <laughs> it's overrated. <laughs> it is. It's overrated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I also like how you brought up how like even in terms of just being in the the middle area between traditional language and English, that's a language in itself. And like I feel like we sell ourselves short and we don't acknowledge that how many of our people are bilingual and trilingual 
Um, and even if you throw in like sign language into that, then we speak multiple languages all the time. It's just that we don't fully acknowledge and embrace that. I feel at times. Yeah. That whole, um, you know, that whole statement, I don't know my language or I lost my language. Sometimes I think that we're not acknowledging the parts of the language that are actually still with us Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that, that we're carrying in the, even, you know, in the way that we talk, in the way that we tell stories, in the way that we, um, I know like there's some memes I've seen about telling a story and, you know, there's this linear way to tell a story, but then when you're telling stories with your cousins and the story goes off in five different directions and then you come all the way around back to the, yeah. and that's, that's our way of telling a story. It's not linear yeah. at all. It's, uh, it goes where you need it to go. Yeah. And then like one, one cousin, our friend will tell their version and then the other person will tell their version, which is just a little bit of a different perspective, but it's like the same experience. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And like, we see that when we, um, you know, when we're learning from our communities, our histories, and you hear in one community, you'll hear a story about something historical. And then you go, you go like two communities away and you hear the same story, but it's like, um, it's from a different perspective and you get different details about that historic event. And it's just like, okay, mm-hmm. I have to put all these puzzle pieces together because because of the way our communities work, they carry pieces of the stories, but not all of it. Story is so cool. Yeah, it totally is. And I think like even like one thing I acknowledge with my students is like, is that even our slang and how we speak English is a community in itself and not like somebody, if somebody who didn't speak our slang or doesn't understand our humor walked into a room full of our, our friends and our family and our cousins, it it would be a completely different experience for them. But we're just so used to it that we normalized the way we connect through language that sometimes we sell it short but really like our slang and our humor and how we relate to one another is really unique and not anybody could just enter our circles and pass off as like somebody from there. Like, you know, where, where somebody's from, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. someone's, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. you like, you just pick up on it. Right. And then this, even like when the slangs come out or the humor comes out, it's like, Oh, okay. This person's from here or okay. This person gets it. Yeah. Or like, um, there's this whole, like, realization I think that people have when so when when someone who is not indigenous comes into my like one of my classes as a guest or whatever they don't they don't see the same things that we see just by the way that we communicate Um, but when it's just our indigenous students in there and they're just meeting for the first time they they totally can tell who's from what territory, like who's from the North, Mm -hmm. who's from the South. And it all has to do with the way that they talk and the, and their slang and their accent. I think that's really cool that we can, that we can recognize that um, where other people just like, they see us and they just, you know, you're, you're indigenous. Okay. But then um, indigenous people will be like, oh yeah, you must be from like north of the tree line because of the way you speak. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. It's, it's totally cool. Um, so I guess like one last question I want to ask you is, um, 
if you could remove all barriers and constraints in terms of like you know finances or like funding or time what project would you want to do like what's your most ideal project you want to get off the ground um i want an indigenous education system but like more specifically because i'm cree i want a cree indigenous education system running in our communities yeah but there's so many barriers to that (laughs) yeah i bet and and obviously we could have a whole podcast about that but like i guess the analogy would be like you 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 wanted to publish a book of cree poems and there's so much barriers to that (laughs) yeah (laughs) i like to take the hard road Yeah, but it's a it is a good project. Like I definitely support that and agree with that. I know we've had I think we've have are similar in similar circles where these conversations happen. And um yeah, that it would be the most ideal goal. Yeah, I think so. The most ideal world. So there's anything else you want to talk about? Anything you want to touch on? Any shout-outs you want to give? Um no, I think that's a lot. Yeah, well, thanks for sitting with me and thanks for contributing to the podcast. And yeah, we got a lot of local listeners, a lot of undergraduate students still, so they're going to know your name and and yeah, we'll see how it goes. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for making time, Mika. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.